Hello and welcome to Aircraft Grade, the podcast all about commercial aviation. I'm your host Alex and coming up this week. Why do airlines sell and lease back aircraft? How a Boeing 727 found itself on the M4 and M5 motorways? The result of Lufthansa's 2020 annual report? And as we reach the beginning of the 2020 Formula 1 season, we take a look at the logistics that make the sport possible. take a deep dive into our main topics let's first round up the key aviation stories from the last week giving you my opinion along the way we've previously reported on british airways's plan to move their london heathrow acra flights to depart from london gatwick they've since updated their schedule for the summer season undoing this change after the Ghanaian authorities threatened reciprocal action while no specifics of such action was released it's clear it was obviously enough for ba to reconsider it's just odd though Boeing has raised concerns about the safety of Airbus's upcoming A321 XLR that we spoke about in episode 6 of Aircraft Grade. Their concerns originate from the rear central fuel tank installed underneath the passenger cabin. Boeing are concerns that if there is a fire in this fuel tank, there will be far less redundancy and thus safety. However, Airbus have maintained their tank has been thoroughly tested and is safe. And I would tend to agree with that. A major security breach led to vandalisation at Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport on Friday. Greenpeace activists bypassed security to access an Air France 777. They proceeded to paint a portion of the plane green in protest of the airlines and industry's impact on the environment, claiming that the green aircraft being developed aren't enough to halt climate change. How they broke in is still unknown. Air France are already in the process of retiring some 777-200ERs. Whether this example is on the chopping block is also unknown, but considering a respray costs tens of thousands of euros, it seems unlikely that it will return to service anytime soon, in my opinion. South Korea's new presidential plane project has just got underway, with a Korean Air 7478 arriving in Hamburg on Wednesday. The four-year-old jet has been leased by the Korean government and will serve as VIP transport for the next five years. The plane will now undergo upgrades like a cabin redesign and new security measures, the details of which are mainly unknown. If all goes to plan, the new jet will enter service in November this year. Tuesday, it was announced that Indian low-cost carrier Indigo has completed a sale and leaseback agreement for eight A320neos from BOC Aviation. Indigo frequently leases aircraft, with the majority of its 284 aircraft fleet acquired through leases. The new deal with BOC Aviation will start to come into effect when the new planes get delivered in the second half of the year, powered by CFM Leap 1A engines after the Pratt & Whitney engine debacle. Airlines frequently use sale and leaseback for purchasing new aircraft. Back in January, Virgin Atlantic revealed it completed the sale and leaseback of two of its Boeing 7879 aircraft, and in October, Air Canada confirmed it had done the same with nine of its 737 MAX aircraft. This is very common for airlines to do, but what exactly is aircraft sale and leaseback? Well, that's what I'm going to look at today. Airlines receive massive discounts when ordering large quantities of aircraft from manufacturers. Said and leaseback deals allow airlines to receive a boost of cash from the profit they make selling their planes to lessers. Essentially, airlines receive a plane for a discounted price, then sell it to lessers for a profit. After they sell the plane back to the lessers, they can then lease them back. This allows airlines to operate a large fleet of aircraft with low upfront capital costs to continue expanding quickly. 
Once aircraft have become of age, instead of selling them, they just need to return them to the lesser. It's a fantastic way for airlines to have a modern fleet and still be cash positive. As well as the other two examples I've previously mentioned, airlines like Air France, Cathay Pacific, Wizz and United have all benefited from selling owned planes for a profit before leasing them back. So back to Indigo then, they've continued to take A320neo deliveries despite a difficult 2020, taking a total of 44 new aircraft, becoming Airbus's largest 2020 customer. The airline continued to take planes after they decided to replace all their 120 A320200s with Neo variants in the next two years. In November 2020, a Bristol entrepreneur announced his vision to recycle an old Boeing 727 as an office and event space. The plan was to move the aircraft from Cotswold Airport to Bristol, a distance of around 40 miles. A mammoth task. Since the initial announcement, the plan has faced many setbacks, however the immense undertaking has finally been completed. The wingless and tailless fuselage created some spectacular sights for spectators along both the M4 and M5 motorways and the A4-175. But why was the 727 needed? Well, Johnny Palmer, the finder of Pitch, the owners of the plane, said our virtual event studios have been getting busy since Covid and we need more space at Pitch. So rather than do resource and carbon intensive construction, we decided to repurpose the icon of unsustainable hyperconsumption the airliner private jet. So to summarise, the organisation needed more space to rent out for events, and instead of creating a large amount of greenhouse gases by constructing a new building, why not repurpose an old aircraft? I guess it makes sense. Moving the 727 really wasn't simple, with the company having to hire two giant cranes to lift the fuselage onto a flatbed truck. And in order to actually navigate the road system from Cotswold Airport to the Bristol Industrial Estate, police escorts were required to limit disruption. This created havoc when emergency vehicles needed to pass the convoy since the plane blocked the whole motorway. Taking time to secure the jet to the lorry properly was immensely important. If the plane had rolled off down the road, it would have been lethal. Luckily though, no such eventuality happened, and according to Palmer, the journey was only received positively by the general public. When the plane arrived at its new home, it required the same two giant cranes to lift it from the truck onto its resting place, some old shipping containers. There the jet will be turned into some nice office spaces, since the company's previous offices have been taken over by sound stages and green screen areas since lockdown. The 727 has been used for two primary purposes in its lifetime. It was originally operated by Japan Airlines for passenger service, and then in its second lease of life it was sold to become a private jet fitted with VVIP interiors, which was rumoured to be built to a Saudi prince's spec. The plane is certainly unique and has already become an iconic piece of Bristol and a great addition to its thriving art scene. It's been rumoured for a while now that German flag carrier Lufthansa would retire their A380s or put them into long-term storage. Well, we finally got more clarity about the future of the Super Jumbo, as well as other jets in the Lufthansa Group catalogue. Lufthansa Group have said in their 2020 report that it will be adjusting its long-haul fleet to reduce complexity, costs and emissions. This has led to the airline saying that older, less efficient aircraft like the A340-600 and A380 will be retired or phased out. Lufthansa released a graphic to show how this restructuring will work and which aircraft will be retired. 
Their very large intercontinental fleet will be reduced from A380s and 7478s to just the 747s, and their smaller and older 747-400s will be replaced by 777X aircraft due for delivery between 2023 and 2025. The group standard 777 fleet will see the smaller 777-200s retired, along with the A34600s, with the larger 777-300s remaining in service in place of these retired aircraft. The smaller A34300s will be replaced by 20 new 7879 Dreamliners due for delivery from next year. The A32200 fleet is also being retired, with only the larger 300s remaining, which would also cover the capacity lost from additional 767 retirements. Lufthansa Cargo will no longer operate MD-11 freighters, instead just flying the 777 freighters. A lot of these fleet retirements were during the next couple of years anyway, but simplifying the fleet now will bring Lufthansa and Lufthansa Group a massive cost reduction. I mentioned on a previous episode of Aircraft Grade that Lufthansa had just repainted an A340-300, and then I predicted that it might have a future with the airline, I guess I was wrong, since these jets will be replaced by 787s. Oh, and once again, these retirements are across all Lufthansa Group airlines, not just the main carrier. This includes Swiss, Austrian Airlines, Brussels Airlines and Eurowings. These changes will lead to an intercontinental aircraft type reduction by 8, leaving only 6 different types of jet, a reduction in fleet size by 115 aircraft and a reduction of CO2 emissions per ASK by 15%. It's worth noting that despite the retirement of many quadjet fleets, Lufthansa will continue to operate the newer 7478s. Some good news did come out of the report, with the airlines reporting orders for 67 new aircraft due for delivery between 2022 and 2029, with options for 55 more. This includes orders for 26 A350s, 20 787s, 20 777Xs and one 777 freighter. They also revealed plans to bring forward the introduction of their new business class product, originally scheduled for release in the 777X. However, the product is being brought forward to be introduced in 2022 in new aircraft, with the whole fleet taking a further couple of years to be retrofitted. This is a great decision in my opinion, since their current 222 offering in business class is becoming very outdated. On the surface, these announcements seem like a bad sign for Lufthansa. Getting rid of 115 aircraft is no mean feat, but it will be highly beneficial for the group. Replacing and retiring older, less efficient jets when demand is in recession allows them to do so without having a supply deficit, and they'll come out of the other side with a newer, far more efficient and cheaper fleet. So, it's good news. As well as being a massive plane nerd, I'm also a massive fan of Formula One, the pinnacle of engineering, speed and competition. But why are we talking about car racing on an aviation podcast? Well, that is a very good question. This week marks the beginning of the 2020 F1 season, with three days of testing in Bahrain, featuring 20 drivers, or 19 depending on who you ask, and 10 teams based in the UK, Switzerland, Italy and the US. And unlike more conventional sports, getting the driver to the track is the easiest part. A driver cannot win without a car, garage or team around them. The logistics to get all these resources to the same place at the same time is a massive challenge. Today, we look at the logistics of Formula One. 
For a racing team to succeed, they need every tool, piece of equipment and component at the circuit on time. If a team's logistics fail, so does the team. This means that the bigger the team, the more money they can spend on transport, so the more success they'll have. Formula 1 is a true international sport, with a 2020 season featuring 23 races in 22 different countries. Out of the 10 teams, 7 are based in the UK. Although Haas are American, they have a secondary base in the UK in Banbury, so they do have a UK base, with the three other teams based elsewhere in Europe. This is a massive advantage for the teams during the European leg of the season in the summer months. This makes the logistics of the European season relatively simple, with most teams driving their equipment around the continent due to the price of trucking being far less than that of flying. Unlike non-European races, the teams operate their own convoys of trucks that roam Europe, carrying everything a team will need for a race weekend. Normally races are spread two weeks apart. This gives the teams time to pack down their equipment and truck them to the next event. However, if there is a back-to-back -back European race weekend, two races which are only a week apart, logistics become a bit more of a concern. Once the first event has finished on the Sunday, the next event needs to be set up by the Thursday morning. For example, in the 2021 season, there's a triple header from Belgium, then the Netherlands a week after, and then Italy a week after that. To get between one of these locations to the next, the F1 teams pack down all their equipment into trucks manned by three drivers. Why three? Well, it allows the trucks to drive non-stop, which prevents wasting precious time. And time is money. The cars themselves are dismantled to their bare shells and packed into protective containers, and various other essentials, like comms gear, is packed into different trailers. F1 teams operate a fleet of tens of trucks, allowing them to transport the whole F1 circus across Europe in as little as a couple of days. If the European races aren't back-to-back, -back, the cars and equipment are usually driven back to each team's home base for maintenance. But where do planes come into this? This is of course an aviation podcast. Well, let's move on to flyaway races, or races at circuits outside of Europe. These flyaway events are a much harder logistical challenge. Much of the F1 calendar is filled with flyaway races, so require a lot more planning. Usually, beginning months before, at the beginning of each year, in January or February. Each team packs up five sets of cargo called sea kits. These contain things like tables, chairs, jacks and trolleys, or items which are defined as non-critical for race performance. Four of them are sent by ship from the UK to the first four flyaway races of the season, as ocean transport is less expensive than air freight and is more sustainable. The last one is trucked to the first European race and is then transported around the continent for the rest of the European season, with the rest of the trucks in a team's convoy. Having five sets of these sea kits allows the teams to always have them available at every race, even if sea transport is slower than flying. Once each kit has been used at its flyaway event, it gets sent to the next flyaway event without a kit. For example, in 2019, the container for the Australian Grand Prix was sent to Canada after the race had finished. Then, after the season had been completed, they get sent home to the team's bases. Well, what happens to the rest of the gubbings that teams require for a race weekend? Well, let's take a look at how everything is transported on a back-to-back -back flyaway weekend, the biggest logistical challenge of the season. Then later, we'll take a look at the logistics of the sport for non-consecutive race weekends.
Before the races on a Sunday have even seen the chequered flag, the pack-up of the F1 paddock has already begun. The teardown is intricate and precise, usually planned on the Thursday morning at the beginning of the race weekend. In normal circumstances, spare engines and other major spare parts are usually packed up, ready for transport by Saturday evening or Sunday morning, as there isn't enough time for the teams to change engines before the start of the Grand Prix. The rest of the paddock starts to get dismantled just 15 minutes after the checker, but fully dismantled in just 8 hours. The pack-up of garages is conducted by a specialist team, who each have their own role for maximum efficiency. Garage walls are deconstructed, computer racks are packed away, and the cars are dismantled. Tyres are usually returned to Pirelli, the designated tyre supplier. Much of this dismantling can only begin after the FIA, the board regulating the cars to make sure they're legal, have inspected all the cars after the races, meaning delays in this process can derail the whole operation. So let's talk about planes then. Each team packs up three priority pallets, the size of normal cargo containers. These contain essentials necessary to put together the garages when the teams first arrive at the circuits, so the setup teams can start to build the paddock while they wait for other equipment and personnel to arrive on site. The team's priority pallets are then taken to the nearest airport by truck, where DHL flies them to the next event. DHL is Formula 1's official logistics partner, and has 35 years of experience working in Formula 1. They are in charge of the team's logistics when they race outside of Europe. The team's priority pallets alone fill up one of the cargo carrier 747s, and as this plane is taken off, the final equipment back at the circuit is in its final stages of being loaded. The rest of the team's equipment, including all the camera equipment and computers used to broadcast the show to millions across the globe, is then loaded into another 5 or 6 747s to begin their journey to the next event. Car components are placed in specially designed containers with foam inserts, or even wrapped in bubble wrap. Formula 1 charter these planes from DHL, although teams still have to pay the hefty transport costs. Considering each team carries enough parts to build 3 F1 cars, 40 sets of tyres, 2,500 litres of fuel, 200 litres of oil and 90 litres of coolant, I can't even imagine the size of the bill. Oh wait, yes I can, it costs each team over 8 million US dollars a year. That's insane. The staff that make the event possible usually then fly to the next event on the Monday after a night in their hotel. Some lower level staff and journalists may fly commercially, while some others, like the drivers, may choose to fly privately. As soon as the priority flight has landed at the destination, it is unloaded and driven to the circuit. In some cases, especially with back-to-back -back events, custom checks may be done at the circuit instead of the airport to save time. As soon as freight arrives at location, it is lined up in front of the team's garages in the pit lane, ready to be assembled. No one is allowed to start unpacking their priority pallets until everyone's freight has arrived for fairness and safety. After the equipment has been set up, the garages are closed so the rest of the freight can arrive. The 747s touch down sometime on the Tuesday evening and the containers arrive on location overnight. In just four hours, on Wednesday morning, everything is set up and fully operational. To make this massive operation possible, every small detail needs to be checked. Are the roads to and from the airports appropriate for all the equipment required? Do the airports have the infrastructure to handle 6 or 7 747s that need to be unloaded quickly? And will customs even allow certain machinery through the borders? These are all questions that need to be answered.
For non-back-to-back flyaway race weekends, there is less time pressure, with teams frequently having time to fly their cars back to their factories for a respray and check. This also allows them to pack upgrades for the next race and change what they bring in their priority pallets. Despite this, it isn't uncommon for team members to fly car upgrades in their hand luggage or checked baggage on their way to races at various points in the season. Also, at some point during the season, every sea kit will make its way back to the UK for checking and upgrading. To summarise then, for the European season, teams are in charge of transporting their own equipment using their own trucks. Whereas for flyaway events, BHL, the official logistics partner of Formula 1, takes over to fly the team's gear from race to race. Aviation plays a massive role in allowing DHL and Formula 1 to transport 660 tonnes of air freight over 131,995 kilometres around the globe. Aviation never fails to amaze me, and to be honest, neither does Formula 1. As well as being official logistics partner, DHL has a deeper connection with F1. They sponsor the fastest lap award, allowing drivers to gain a point from achieving the fastest lap in a race, as well as the DHL Fastest Pit Stop Award. I really hope you've enjoyed this Aviation F1 crossover. I've had a lot of fun researching it, and I hope you've loved listening to it as well. Now it's time to cover the most important airplane orders and deliveries over the last week. Reinforcing its confidence in the Boeing 737 MAX, United Airlines has increased its current order by 25 jets, These new aircraft are due for delivery by 2023. NetJets, a private jet giant, has signed a memorandum of understanding for 20 AS2 supersonic jets. This increases the manufacturer's backlog to over 10 billion US dollars. China Eastern has firmed up orders for five Comac C919 narrowbody jets. The new orders are just a quarter of the 20 jets China Eastern originally promised to purchase back in 2010. Smartlink's Malta has signed a new partnership agreement with DHL to operate two A321-200 freighters. The jets are also due for delivery this year and are the most efficient jets in their class. On to deliveries then. Lufthansa's first ever A350, originally delivered to the airline in December 2016, has returned from the paint shop after having the airline's new livery applied. Air China has taken delivery of its fourth Comac ARJ21 regional jet. The smallest of the two ARJ21 options, the Dash 700 was delivered to Air China on lease. Volatea has received an A320 on wet lease from Alaska Airlines, and Bulgaria Air has received a seven-year-old example from Aigle Azure, and Fly Aristan has received an ex-Vistara plane. Wizair, Indigo and Vistara have taken delivery of new A320 Neo jets. Amazon Prime Air has received six 767-300s for freighter conversion and 737 Maxes have been delivered to Southwest, Copper and Tui. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to the Aircraft Brave podcast. If you did enjoy it, please leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AircraftGrade. If you do enjoy this podcast, please share it amongst your aviation-loving friends. I've been Alex. Have a decently average week. Goodbye.